from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Robert Paul Ashley Jr. General Robert Paul Ashley Jr. is director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and he joins us on this episode for an exclusive look at what keeps him up at night. It's that we miss something that is a game changer. DIA's job is to provide decision advantage for the nation's senior leadership and for the warfighter. You know, ensuring that we're doing everything we can not to be surprised uh, by either a strategic move, uh, by a key competitor, or the development of a game-changing piece of technology that we did not anticipate. And there's a lot of that out in the world. Hypersonics, uh, swarming technology. But with those and many other dangerous technologies floating around, the key problem facing DIA is human. The speed of human interaction. We ask penetrating questions about DIA's efforts to maintain its edge and Ashley's connection to the workforce. That is an emotional question for me to answer. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This week is the third anniversary of the launch of Target USA in March of 2016. The first guest on our program was then Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. He, by the way, was the 11th Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And on this program, we're speaking with the 21st Director, Lieutenant General Robert P. Ashley. He served in the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a number of different commands on his rise to lead the DIA. And he arrived at a time when the world seems to be careening out of control because of all the conflicts, emerging weapons, attacks on the world order, and most of all, the pace of change. Our first question, right out of the gate, was what his most pressing concern is. So it's kind of the uh, what keeps you up at night question. And if, if I put it in that context, it's that we miss something that is a game changer. So part of the, the task that we have, right, is decision advantage for the nation's senior leadership, for the warfighter, and we do that by understanding uh, military capability. And there's lots of uh, the diffusion of technology that's taking place these days. And so one of our our charters, along with the IC, this is a team sport, is our ability to understand some of those potential game-changing technologies that may be emerging or something that's dual use that gets used in a very innovative way. So the thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, ensuring that we're doing everything we can not to be surprised uh, by either a strategic move, uh, by a key competitor, or the development of a game-changing piece of technology that we did not anticipate. Because part of what we do by providing those insights is it allows the people in the acquisition side of the house to figure out what the defeat mechanism is. Is there a scenario right now that's pushing close to 
that very thing that you're dealing with. So one of the things that's interesting in, the, in how the environment is developing is really just the speed of human interaction. And so the speed of human interaction and in the context of technology and development for things that are not only inherently military in nature, but things that are dual use. Um, there are a number of different kinds of weapon systems that are uh, under development uh, along the lines of things like hypersonics, uh, swarming technology, uh, nuclear propulsion that's behind, you know, and this is some of the things that the Russians have talked about that they're working on, uh, nuclear propulsion behind a unmanned kind of vehicle. So it's, it's those kinds of technologies, and it gets back to, to really what's in the national defense strategy. So what the national defense strategy has is how do we ensure that the technical, you know, that, that gap that exists between us and our competitors, that space remains uh, rather significant because it's closing. In the, in the days of, you know, um, few nations having that kind of technology, ballistic missiles is a good example. You know, at one point you would look at, well, how do I counter ballistic missiles? What nations have them? It's just a, just a few, and now you see the proliferation of that kind of technology. Lots of nations have ballistic missiles. Now, not that they're our adversaries, but the technology gets out, and some of the key competitors are willing to sell it to other nations. And so you just get a proliferation of technology in general uh, that could hold, uh, hold nations at risk. This is the 22nd of February, 2019. Earlier this week, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, to my view, to my thinking, seemed to threaten the U.S., saying that if the U.S. places missiles in Europe, uh, not only will Russia go after those missiles, but it will also target the U.S. Do you take that as a threat? So um, what I look at is capability and intent. And so we have to take a look at what is the actual capability they have and how that might be employed. Lots of potential options there. Um, so I don't necessarily look at what he says specifically. I look at the capabilities that they're developing. A bit of bluster there. He may not have uh, anything to back up what he's essentially trying to anecdotally use as a threat. So going back to the time of the Soviets, they've always had the capability to strike the U.S. So there's nothing new about that. You, you, you lay out what those capabilities are, and, and what you're looking at are things that may be new and maybe more difficult to defend against, but they've had intercontinental ballistic missiles, and the number of those that have existed, that's you know what kind of drove START, uh, the New START II treaty, where we had a reduction in the number of uh, uh, nuclear warheads. So the ability to reach the U.S. is nothing new. Mm -hmm. Do you think that he would do that if he had the chance? To strike the U.S.? Yes. It would be that you would have to have the context of the situation. Because, you know, a lot of times we talk about the fact that the Russians have a first-use first strategy. And then what would be the context in which they would use that? And I think if they felt that the regime was at risk um, would be one of, the, one of those scenarios. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's in their decision calculus and part of what they talk about in their doctrine. And again, there's nothing new about that. Considering what Russia's doing and what Putin is thinking, hopefully this will work, He's trying to reassert himself and try, trying to essentially, to some degree, put the old Soviet Union back together, which many folks from around the world say will never happen, and there doesn't seem to be any real proof that he is close to doing that. 
But he's just one of many threats, many issues and concerns and problems that are out there. Looking at nation states um, at this point, do you see uh, greater threats uh, from other near-peer or great power uh, nations out there that uh, need to be dealt with sooner than later? So going back to trying to put the Soviet Union back together in your initial comment, uh, as I've talked to some of the folks that are more steeped in the history and understanding of Russia as a nation, what existed in the Soviet Union, they look at Putin more of uh, thinking more of the, the days of the Tsar than the days of the Soviet Union and the Big Red Army. Um, the other part of your question is, I mean, are there other threats out there? So again, back to the national defense strategy, um, really lays out, you know, kind of that two plus three construct. So it, it's the reemergence of great power competition. Principally, we look at China and Russia, um, but other threats because of you know potential capabilities or designs they have to cause instability. When we look at North Korea, Iran, and then really the global conditions that have uh, facilitated violent extremism. Other intelligence community leaders have talked about their concerns, you know, as these great power countries. And some of these technologies emerge that you've spoken about uh, continue their trajectories. Uh, and I think it was D Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates that expressed concern about the possibilities that some of these adversaries could team up against the U.S. with some of these technologies. Do you see that happening? Is there any evidence to, in, in, from your perspective? Uh, that that's happening. So there's some teaming in research uh, that we see. Um, some of the things that we've seen the Chinese and the Russians do uh, with regard to some some technology. Um, there's a bigger question there of what you know what really constitutes an ally and how those relationships are built. And it kind of gets into the rules-based order that came out of World War II. So when I think of allies, I think of people that have like values. And those are relationships that are built on trust. So when you get after you get after World War II and you look at what NATO is, if you look at NATO's expanded, if you look at the relationships we have with some of our partners, those are relationships that are strong. They're not you know they're not transactional. Um, they're built on shared values. They're built on a level of trust. And so in there lies strength. Uh, when I think about a potential relationship, um, whether it's China or Russia, there may be shared interests as it relates to being able to counter the U.S. I don't necessarily see shared values or a level of trust, so I think that's more transactional. It may be a means to an ends in a near term. What do you think about the Volkstock exercise? That was a massive exercise. It, that was not research. That was that was okay. Let's practice this. I mean, there were a thousand planes, or and I think it was three hundred thousand troops, or something like that. But it was massive. Does that say something more to you than just research? So I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put that in the context of research. It was an exercise. So there's other things for research of technology, but that was an exercise. So part of what we do here is, you know, we talked about. So we provide decision advantage for the nation, for the for the leaders, by understanding what capabilities exist that the military has. And that capabilities is it's far more complicated than saying you got six tanks, you got five planes, you got this. 
because you really have to look at how would they fight it? How do you bring all that together? And to be able to actually engage in combined arms warfare is a very, very hard, complicated thing to do. Um, what I'll say about what you described in Vostok is they were physically there, but that was not anything along the lines of what I would consider even the beginning of integration. And to be able to integrate on the different domains of warfare, to be able to do maritime, land, air, and, and space, and in cyber is a very, very complicated uh, lift which requires a lot of training, a lot of commonality and doctrine, you know, the kind of things that we work through NATO over decades. Just to show up and be part of a, a really a demonstration, that's not an integrated capability. Speaking of NATO, a lot of people are nervous about NATO right now, not NATO's capabilities, not the value of NATO, not um, what NATO stands for or means. Um, spending some time with some folks from around the world at the Munich Security Conference recently, some of the conversations that I had with people from different countries were about the U.S.'s role in NATO. Tell me what your view of the U.S.'s, the U.S. military's role in NATO is and what its commitment is from your perspective. So part of that is a policy decision, so I won't talk to the policy piece. Uh, as far as U.S.'s role, we're one of 30 nations. Um, you know, obviously one of the principal founding members. Uh, we are a huge, I think we are a huge unifying factor uh, for NATO, but um, uh, our role has not changed. Can NATO be what it is without the U.S.? Or would it ever? I mean, I think they're less capable without us. What does the U.S. do for NATO that no one else can do for NATO? I think it's probably more uh, a scale uh, that U.S. brings. I think there's a significant leadership role that we provide for NATO. Having some limited experience with NATO and, you know, just as a, as a journalist, watching and observing and, and talking to people about about NATO, you talk about change taking place and, you know, technology, et cetera. And some of your predecessors have talked about this change that continues to take place. From your vantage point, how do you see NATO taking advantage of this technology and this period to uh, make itself stronger, better? So I haven't really dug into that because I'm, I'm not, you know, integral to part of that. I think part of what we look at, again, let me go back to the national defense strategy, mm -hmm. right? So there were three lines of effort that the Secretary laid out. One was lethality. The second one is, you know, expanding partners and allies. And then the last one really got into business practices. So when I think of the context of NATO, uh, I, I kind of draw the emphasis on the second one, you know, that the, the role that allies and partners play are integral. There's, the U.S. cannot take on all of this, you know, ourselves. So there's, there's various alliances that, that we're part of that exist. And so it just it, it demonstrates the importance of the strength of alliances. And you've heard this probably time and time again. It's probably the most successful alliance uh, that has existed in history. And it has proven itself uh, for decades. You said in your strategy, the DIA strategy, our competitors are building asymmetric capabilities. And you've talked a little bit about that today. 
that seek to diminish our long-standing military dominance in all warfighting domains, land, maritime, air, space, and cyber. Give us a sense of uh, an example or two of how you're seeing this play out. I think, I think probably the best example would be uh, counterspace. So recently we published an unclassified document called Challenges uh, in Space. And so some of the capabilities, and, and we talked about this from an asymmetric standpoint. So just to go toe-to-toe with us in a very symmetric fashion, um, you know, we, we, have the, we have an upper hand uh, in terms of our capabilities. So what our adversaries are looking to do is come at us in a very asymmetric way and look at some of the enablers that we have and see how they could attack those. And so I think space, because we do a lot of work with regards to uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, you know, global positioning systems for timing and for navigation, is that they're looking at capabilities where they can actually work to deny us. Uh, you know, that's the objective, to try to deny us those capabilities. So whether it's a directed energy weapon from the ground, it's an anti-satellite uh, capability from the ground, or looking to develop um, electronic warfare, a jamming satellite, or a co-orbital satellite, which ostensibly could be launched for purposes of doing repair and maintenance, but also has the ability to move in proximity to, uh, to a U.S. or a friendly Western satellite and cause damage to that. So in those kinds of ways, they're looking at you know, how do they counter us from an asymmetric way and take away some of our capability. What's the most important domain to you for the work you need to do? Or are you going to say all of them or which So that's, them? A, that's an interesting question. I've never had anybody ask me which is the most important of those domains. Um, if you're asking me which ones do the Chinese think is the most important, I would say it's the information domain because there's a, and it's hard to say the word, it's informa- informatization, I think is the word, because in their strategy, they look at it in such a way that if they can control information, and that's a big control of information, that's cyber, um, it's the ability to move things through communication systems, part of the denial of you know, space that we talked about, um, they feel that will give them a marked advantage. Um, I'm not going to default as a soldier and tell you that the ground domain is the most important. I think, to get back to your question, which is the most important, it's not that there's any one of them singular, it's how do you bring them all together? And if I can use a basketball analogy for you, and not to eat up some of your time, but years ago, um, one of my bosses, General Robert Brown, used to play basketball at West Point for Coach K. And they've stayed in touch through the years. And I think this was around 13 or 14. I think it was the Miami Heat, and I think the San Antonio Spurs were in the finals. And my sergeant major was a big basketball fan, and LeBron was playing for the Heat at the time. And he said, I don't know why we're going to play in the finals. I don't know why they're going. I mean, the Heat are just going to crush them. I don't know why they're even scheduling this. He was so confident. So what was the outcome? Both. LeBron lost. The Heat lost. And I was talking to General Brown about it. And he said, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Coach K, Coach Krzyzewski. And I said, well, what did he say? And what he did is he held up his hand with his fingers extended. And he said, it's the difference between fingers extended. And then he closed his fist. And I said, I'm not sure I get it. He goes, it's the difference between five individuals and a team. So when somebody says, what's the most important domain? I'm not sure that I can isolate one. I mean, everyone comes with its, its own unique capability and its ability to cause damage or to be able to, to dominate an opponent. 
But whoever can put all that together, that's true power. And so it's the person that can integrate all that. So you get back to, you know, another, you know, basic blocking and tackling. I don't need necessarily a, a LeBron. What I need is something that integrates across all the warfighting functions that is seamless, that is integrated, going back to our conversation of what you saw at Vostok. And that's hard to do, to have multi-domain battle, which is one of the concepts that the Army started and it's working its way through the other services, to have multi-domain battle, to synchronize in time, in space, across space, air, cyber, maritime, and, and ground. Mm -hmm. That is powerful. That is powerful. And there was a, a, a book on modern warfare that uh, Michael Hanlon from the Brookings Institute wrote uh, several years ago. And one of the questions I asked uh, futurist Peter Singer, I said, is there something out there that's coming um, that really scares you from a game changer? And he goes, it's not so much that there's something out there from a game changer standpoint. He says it's really the, the, the significant thing is who can fight it the best? Who can integrate it? And then in Michael Hanlon's book, he said, the technologies that are emerging are only going to make you good. It's something you're already good at doing now. And so when you look at what we did in 2003, mm -hmm. what we did in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, that was a big attention getter for our arrivals to see how that you could put all of that together and dominate well, what was, I think, at the time, probably the fourth or fifth largest army. That is, interestingly enough, a question that was coming a little bit further down the road. But since you've opened the door to this, a um, couple people that I've spoken to in the last year or two said something very similar to me, that the U.S., with its awesome display of firepower and everything during the course of Desert Storm, Desert Shield, etc., taught the enemy or the adversaries how to fight the U.S. Do you agree with that? It gave them insights to where they were... Um, they had huge shortages, huge shortfalls. So as we started becoming more BCT-centric, we saw some of those, you know, they kind of mirror some of the capabilities. And so they've mirrored some of the formations. They've, uh, Russia has put together, you know, a series of combined commands. We've seen the Chinese do that. So they've, they've integrated um, multi-functions at lower echelons to be able to have that kind of synergy uh, that the U.S. has. But here's the, here's the big difference. Initiative. Who we are as a nation. Non-commissioned officers. They don't have that. The level of initiative and what we do with non-commissioned officers to lead soldiers on the battlefield, whether it is in a wing, whether it's in a brigade, or you name it, that kind of initiative that kind of leadership, it's not in their DNA because they're overly centralized. Now, I'm not to totally discount everything that, you know, your opponent can do. That doesn't take away nations that have nukes and, and other significant capabilities. But one of the things America does better than anybody is solve problems and build leaders. And that is something that they will be woefully... Uh, challenge to do, at least from my perspective. 
So do they do a lot to mirror us and to the degree that, you know, because our doctrine for the most part is all published, uh, open. So you can read it. Mm -hmm. You know, I can read about uh, how to hit a golf ball, and chances are I'm still going to slice it. Well, I'm sure practice will help that, but I don't think that that's a problem. You can only get to a certain part, certain certain level potentially, but yeah. But but there there's there's some significant things about who we are as a nation. So it gets back into that uh, extended fingers in the fist. Yeah. You can give them all the different pieces and parts, but the whole is not necessarily going to be the sum of all those parts. Yeah, they still know how to, have to know how to use it, and that's that's not a given. Use it, but you know, leadership is if you go back and look through history, it's a lot of the lessons are less about um, technology and more about leaders at decisive points. And they're not always, you know, U.S. examples, but a lot of them are. Let me ask you this question. I want to ask you about your team. That was going to be next, but you've mentioned something about decisive points in history. And I want to ask you about that now. Are we at one of those watershed decisive moments in history where we will, or the people that follow us will look back 50 years from now and say, um, this is what led to that, and it's these decisions or these act- actions that led us to where we are now. Do you believe that we're at one of those historical de- decision points in our uh, individual history as a nation? I think we're at a very important inflection point, and I would imagine that probably most generations in the context of what was happening at the time probably viewed it the same. So I put it in the context of what is really in the national defense strategy, if you go back to that discussion about great power competition. So what has existed since the end of World War II? There has been a rules-based order based on democratic or really, you know, values-based construct that came out of World War II. And so we're at a point now where we've seen the reemergence of great powers that want to contest that. And you'll hear some people say, well, they just want to totally reset the rules-based order. Um, I think they've taken advantage of it because they can kind of swim in those lanes um, and take advantage of that degree of liberalism that exists in, in, uh, in this current uh, rules-based order. But they don't want to break it. They, they bend it to their advantage. Uh, the risk that at some point it does break and you start seeing more like nations uh, of some of our key adversaries going back to um, values that are not the ones that we hold dear, and I don't think the ones that are really for the betterment of mankind in the long run. You know, it was interesting back in the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 was the idea of sovereignty, which is, you know, it doesn't matter how big or small you are as a nation, as a sovereign, whatever took place inside your borders was your business. And I think we owe, um, I think, a, a larger uh, responsibility to mankind uh, these days that if you see, so if you saw something so egregious as the Holocaust, right, taking place, or a Holocaust taking place inside the borders of a nation under the Westphalian construct, that's what's happening inside the sovereign. That is up to them to deal with. Not something we would stand for. So when you look at some of these key major powers and who do they align with or who are their closest partners, the Cubas, the Nicaraguas, the Venezuelas of the world, and these are not places where anyone's flocking to. 
because of the nature of the leadership and what they do to their people and how they suppress them. But they advocate for these nations because their fear, their fear is what we represent. Those democratic values that are represented to, of, of a people and a government that is responsive to the government, it's what's in our Constitution. And it's that kind of um, values construct that scares them. And so that's why you see them lining up with some of these nations that have leaders like Ortega, um, the Castro family, and, and Maduro. Is there something you can share about what you've learned uh, regarding um, the Venezuelan regime and the threat that it might pose or does pose, if any, at this point, or what it represents to those who would indeed like to challenge the U.S. or the world order? And I asked that question because I heard not long ago that Russia had sent some advisors, shall we say, with air quotes, to Venezuela. And that's a very interesting location in this hemisphere for Russian advisors to be based. Do you know that to be true? And do if, it's, if it is, does it matter? Yeah, so I, so I won't comment on, on the Russian advisor piece. And what I will say about uh, the situation in Venezuela is it's, it's a travesty for the Venezuelan people and the suffering that they're on, you know, that they're, that, that we see uh, them going through. Um, let me get back to one of your other, uh, if I could, just your question before that, because you said, you know, the, the, the judgment that will be made of this generation, this kind of this inflection point, made me think of something that uh, General, or actually Secretary of Defense Mattis said. And I think this is true. Uh, one of his quotes was, this generation will be judged on our ability, and I'm paraphrasing, to account for the rise of China. And so while we look at the Chinas of the world, um, and even Graham Nash, who wrote a, a great book on uh, China and that rise, uh, where he lays out uh, the Thucydides trap of a rising and a ruling power, talked it in the context of you cannot contain China. So how do you account for that rise? And I think it gets back to the Secretary's comment of, so that is the long-term, you know, long game when we think about China specifically, but how do you account for that rise and, and how do you get China to become a responsible actor in that rules-based order that we talked about where it's not taking advantage and trying to bend it, but they're a productive member of that rules-based order? All right. Before we run out of time, I want to talk to you a little bit about your team, how many people you have, where they are, and what are they doing. So we're about uh, 16,500 strong. Uh, a little less than half of that is here in the Beltway. And we are global. Uh, kind of the key aspects that make us global is all the defense attaches that are sitting in uh, 140 different embassies and accredited to about, I think it's about 170 some total, uh, represent a global footprint for DIA, which means that represents a global footprint for the Department of Defense and for the Secretary. And the other area that we have a huge investment is every combatant command. So having been the CENTCOM J-2 uh, was really my, my first real introduction uh, to the level of professionalism uh, of DIA and their ability to execute that core mission of understanding, you know, understanding the enemy to provide that decision advantage. 
So when you go to a combatant command and you go inside the J-2, which more times than not is going to be the biggest staff because of the intel requirements, they have a joint uh, intel operations center, a JIOC, and that JIOC is probably going to be about 85%, 90% uh, DI employees. And those are really your subject matter experts, even though you have you know, a number of service members that are in there. But the level of professionalism and what they do and the continuity they provide is tremendous. So when I was the J-2 at CENTCOM, and oh, by the way, CENTCOM commander at the time just happened to be General Mattis, if I had a hard analytic problem or if I had something I needed to have exquisite detail on with regards to a military capability, um, how they fought, what the t piece of technology was, the person I was putting in front of him to have that conversation uh, more than time, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, was a DIA officer. It's very interesting. Um. And, and if I could add to that, you know, the other thing from the tradecraft and the analytics side, what I have learned having been a practitioner for three decades because of the discipline in this organization and how they grow analytic capability has upped my game tremendously. Mm. Well, speaking of which, your game, decision advantage. You've mentioned that several times in our conversation. What is your advantage? What is the advantage that you have right now at this point in the time continuum that we exist in? What is your advantage at this point? So it starts with the workforce. I think really for us, and it gets back to some of those leadership things that we talked about, but really it's, it's the level of expertise uh, that exists in our ability to attract high talent that want to come and be part of the intelligence community. So that for me, that is a huge decision advantage for us as an organization and really for us as a team of teams across the uh, intelligence community. What would you like to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? So let me give you my, my one ad was, would be why. And we recently had the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and uh, the chairman, Chairman Burr said, if you wanted to pass a message off about your organization, you know, if you wanted to send a message to them, you know, what would it be? Or what you would want to share with the American people? And, I, and for me, it's Simon Sinek wrote a great book called Start With Why. And I think our collective why is that we get to defend the hopes and dreams of 330 million Americans every single day. And that is a huge reason to crawl out of bed in the morning and come to work. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today. This was a very interesting interview with General Ashley. It was very thought-provoking, very insightful, and inspiring. And there was one other thing that took place. I asked him one final question, which seemed to catch the tough, battle-hardened soldier a bit off guard. You could hear it. If today was your last day um, running this office for whatever reason, what is, the, what is the last thing you would want to do? That is an emotional question for me to answer. I would walk around and shake everybody's hand and tell them thanks. Thanks for being a great teammate. Thanks for your sacrifice. You could probably hear the sincerity in his voice, but what you probably couldn't hear was the cracking in his voice. What you definitely couldn't see was him trying to blink away, whatever it was that seemed to get into his eyes at that moment. The moment that he was expressing exactly how important his work was, and more importantly, the people that he works with. That's it. 
for this episode of Target USA. Coming up on our next episode, another exclusive interview. You've heard a lot about Maria Butina, right? Now, we hear from her attorney. I think on some level she was naive. Robert Driscoll says Maria Butina, who pled guilty to being an illegal agent of the Russian Federation in the U.S., didn't set out to be a spy, but he could see how it certainly looked that way. I think that there, there, she put herself, there were, there were enough people around who were high profile um, that I understand why people were concerned and why this was looked into. That's coming up on our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, thank you for listening as always. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to have your ear for a little while. I've got a new product I want to tell you about today. It's a new newsletter that we're doing. It's called Inside the Skiff. The Skiff is a sensitive, compartmented intelligence facility, and that has its own inside story. But at any rate, I'd like you to check out this newsletter because it keeps you up to date on everything we're doing on Target USA and all of the other national security work that I'm doing. So you can go to WTOP.com to the alert section and sign up for it. And again, thank you. Also, if you have any questions or comments about the program, you want to send me a note, do it at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. That's jgreen at WTOP.com. Follow us on Twitter, also at TUSA Podcast, Tango Uniform Sierra Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. If you like my show, you're going to love Reasonable Doubt on Podcast One. Join world-renowned criminal defense lawyer Mark Garagos as he reveals the latest in our nation's most high-profile legal cases with podcast king Adam Carolla. Download Reasonable Doubt every Saturday on Podcast One, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.